You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I am literally uh, three hours away from leaving on vacation. And I actually start, <laughs> started to think maybe I need a vacation, actually. This podcast may be a little darker than usual. I, I was kind of going through my thoughts. What's on my mind as I head out into the vacation land with the family? My wife and two kids and I are going to go to the Florida Keys for a little bit and actually just kind of lay around on a beach and read some books and chill and eat some really good food. And I'm looking forward to it. But this last week was Super Tuesday. As happens in election years, my Facebook feed has turned crazy. The people who are normally smart, engaging, thoughtful, sharing interesting things have all of a sudden turned into like raging lunatics. More than anything, I think this is what depresses me. And, and don't get me wrong. I think social media is fantastic. I'm not a social media hater. In fact, I think that social media has done more to shrink our world and, and, and bring us together. I, one of the early things on social media that astounded me is, is just, it's obvious now, just intuitive to anyone younger than me. I'm 42. This is not something you ever had to deal with, but all of a sudden I could find all these people I knew from high school. All these people who had disappeared from my life for 15, 20 years, all of a sudden, wow, they're back. It is uh, liberating. It is fun. It is intriguing to you know have all these people who, uh, for a large part, I, I deeply care about. I really like these people. I enjoy having them in my life. To be able to have those interactions and keep in touch, it's, it's just been incredible. But the downside of it is that... Every four years, and actually every two years to a, a smaller degree, but certainly every four years, my feed turns insane, right? Like people just go crazy and they, they say the most insane, vile, non-thinking kind of things. And quite frankly, if you go back through my feed, <laughs> I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure I've been part of this as well. We all get wrapped up in it. The nation goes crazy. And really, I think a lot of it is because we are kind of crazy, when we go out and do a curbside chat, or really, you go back to the beginnings of this movement, the entire thing kind of started with this notion of a growth Ponzi scheme. The idea that our post-World War II development pattern was different in some substantive ways that made the financing of it function like a Ponzi scheme. And I go to great lengths to not emphasize the automobile in this, although the automobile is intrinsically linked to it. I, I don't think that is the major component of this. It's more like the, the accelerant, right? I go to great lengths in the curbside chat to start out and talk about ancient Rome and ancient Ur and all these ancient civilizations and how they built and, and grew and how that was very similar to the way that my hometown here in central Minnesota grew, you know, thousands of years later and how the layout, the design, the, the financing, the techniques, it, everything was very localized. Uh, it all grew very incrementally. I set up this notion that the knowledge to do this was developed by trial and error. This is stuff that came to me from Jared Diamond, really. 
And, you know, Jared Diamond's work looking at what we would label as primitive cultures. And I think he even calls them that in, in his books, primitive cultures, cultures that are, are not advanced, are not technological savvy. He, he's been to Papua New Guinea, parts of South America. He's, he's lived with these people that are still living primitive hunter gatherer lifestyles. And he's like, we can, we can learn a lot from these people. Here's some of the things that we've learned. And I think the, the more fascinating thing of his research is when he juxtaposes the things we think we know with the things that they know. The best one ever, and I, I had it on a podcast a couple of years ago, was the juxtaposition of the economists going into this South American tribal area and looking at these people who had seven different garden plots stretched out all over. They'd have like seven to 10 garden plots in different parts of the, the rainforest. And the economist said, you know, look at how silly and primitive these people are. They're, they're just not very bright. You know, anyone can see that it's not very efficient to have these different plots all over the place. A smart thinking, rational human being, modern human would consolidate, you know, swap. If, if there was a market, people would swap their land holdings and, and you could get, you know, all your holdings closer in one spot and then you wouldn't be spending so much time walking between them. It took an anthropologist to go down and actually look at this again and say, no, these, these people are genius. These people are brilliant because what they're doing is they're not trying to maximize the growth potential of their garden. They're not trying to, you know, as a, a modern ethic, increase the efficiency of their operation. What they're trying to do is survive. And by having seven plots spread out all over the place, you ensure that if one is hit by a, a you know, a hailstorm and another one has a tree fall on it and another one is uh, attacked by, uh, you know, some rodents come in and, and forage through the garden and, and wreck most of it, you, you're likely to have stuff that will allow you to survive. And in fact, uh, the anthropologist worked out mathematically, you would need at least seven plots to make sure that you always survived. If you think about that for a second, you realize how that knowledge came about. It's not like any of them in the civilization said, you know, well, we sit down and mathematically compute that we need seven plots. But what happened? Over time, over thousands of years of human history, families who didn't create seven different plots died. They didn't make it. And so the ones that did had this knowledge of, yeah, you got to have at least seven. <laughs> and you, you see how these things come about, right? So what I like to point out at the beginning of the curbside chat is that we have this way of building that was developed by that method, right? By trial and error. This is, this is what works. You know, this method has been refined not only through times that were plenty, but through times that were difficult, right? Through wars, through famines, through siege, through all kinds of things. These are the places that survived and they survived enough to be copied by others. I point this out because starting in the Great Depression and accelerating after World War II, we not only began this different style with different building types and different ways of laying things out, but we began a different form of financing, right? We actually shifted from an economy that was based largely on local types of things going on, jobs, growth, all this was a byproduct of, of things we did locally, to one where it was the, the national objective, right? It was the, the national objective with jobs and growth, and we were going to maximize those things. And we had all kinds of theories and notions of, of how we were going to do this, particularly by making investments in infrastructure and other things at the local level to accelerate this growth. And I, I walk through this scenario where... 
cities experience growth and it gives them all this cash and then they go through the second life cycle where they have to maintain this stuff and the liabilities start to build up and overwhelm them. And by the time they get to the third life cycle, they're swamped in debt, they're swamped in liabilities, and they are essentially where Detroit is today, right? I go through this and I, I call the first phase the illusion of wealth phase. And then I show them the decline and, and audiences, you know, look at this and it's an intuitively obvious, but I, I think the question that I've begun answering over the last year that really comes from the work of Jared Diamond and sociologists and, and others that I've been reading is, you know, the question, what, what happened to other civilizations? Because we're, we're human, you know, we're human the way people were human a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago. There's, there's not a lot of difference between us in terms of intellect. People tried crazy things 2000 years ago. What happened to them? Well, they failed right? They failed and they weren't copied. The, those approaches went away. What makes us different? What makes us different is that we've been able to do this experiment, the one we're on now, at a continental scale. We're not some lonely place uh, on the African savanna. We are the most powerful nation in the world, redoing an entire continent within a generation around a, a new set of theories of how our people and our economy should work. And we went all in, you know, we didn't try it out. <laughs> we didn't try it out in Wisconsin to see how it would work and then bring it here to Minnesota. We just did this across the whole continent all at once. And now we're at kind of the end game, the end game. Now we're at this place where we've kind of strung it out as far as things seem like they're going to go. And we've got some harder times ahead. I've been listening to an economist a guy named Thomas, and I'm going to say it as an American, Thomas Sedlicek. He's Czech. He's from the Czech Republic. He actually uh, was at a very young age an advisor to Vaclav Havel. And for those of you a little bit younger in our audience, Vaclav Havel was this fascinating character in the uh, the disintegration of the old Soviet bloc. Um, he was a playwright and actually as a playwright became the first kind of post-Soviet freely elected leader of the Czech Republic and a, a very influential European in, in terms of European circles. And this guy, Sedlicek, was one of his economic advisors. And he was like in his early 20s at the time, too. This guy's brilliant, incredibly brilliant. In fact, this week, if you head to the website, you'll see I posted some videos and some other things from Sedlicek. I've seen his first name pronounced Tomei and, and uh, all different kinds of European sounding. In English, it's written Thomas. And then Sedlacek is S-E-D-L-A-C-E-K. As an economist, this guy does not fit the standard mold. In fact, <laughs> one of the things he said in one of the uh, the interviews that I listened to is he said, you know, economists, economists should be treated uh, with respect like any religious minority would. <laughs> His views are that the field of economists is... Uh, as we've said on this show, kind of needing the Einstein revolution, right? We've gotten to the the Galileo-Newton spot where we've kind of calculated things, but now we need to get a, a little bit more abstract and philosophical and start asking some harder questions. He puts forth the notion that before World War II, nations had this fetish of conquering. We felt that the way that we were going to become strong and powerful as nations was to actually conquer territory. 
to go out and, and seize others' lands, kill them, drive them off, or, or, or incorporate them into your own existence and, and occupy their lands. And that was what made a nation great. And he points out that, you know, today, if you came to the Czech Republic and said, uh, we'll give you half of Poland, <laughs> the Czech Republic said, well, we don't want half of Poland. You know, then we would have half of Poland's problems and half of Poland's people. And we, we got our own problems and stuff to take care of. We're, we're not interested in that. We've gone beyond this fetish of conquering. But he said, we've replaced the fetish of conquering with the fetish of growth. The notion that we can outcompete other countries by having higher rates of growth than they do. And so we, we become obsessed with uh, things like GDP and measuring this, this very abstract and, and really when you dig into it, kind of rather bogus number, when you layer assumptions upon assumptions upon assumptions with really sketchy data, you, you don't wind up with, you know, a, a hard science kind of number. It's always been a joke to me when we report economic growth as, you know, 1.3%, as if we can me measure anything to that degree of accuracy. It'd be more honest to say, well, somewhere between zero and three, <laughs> you know, in there, but we don't, we measure it to, you know, 1.2%. And then we come back the next quarter and revise it upward or downward by a fraction of a percentage point, as if we can obtain, you know, that kind of accuracy on something. He points out that, you know, we've replaced this fetish of conquering with this fetish of growth and growth has its own high priests. The, in this country would be the central bankers, you know, prophesize uh, what growth will be for the next year and the next five years and the next 20 years. They issue these reports and they say, here's what we see in the future. And all the people lined up to listen to these prophets and then they run around and, and do, you know, crazy things in response. We've built an entire economy around this. It's interesting because I, as I hear him talk, I hear the the local prophets too, right? Like the planners and the engineers. And I, you know, I, I remember way back when I worked in the trenches as an engineer and a planner, you, you always projected growth. You always projected, even if you were in some pathetic city that no one would ever want to move to, and there's no reason for anyone to ever want to move there. And you know, you, you, you have not seen growth for a long time. You would sit down and you would project some level of growth, right? It's just built in. I, this is built into the way we build highways and, and roadways, right? I mean, even when we see declining traffic levels, the engineers will come in and project robust growth every year indefinitely and then widen and add more lanes, right? We, this is built in the cult of growth, the, the notion that things must always grow. And what Sedlicek's argument at the end of the day is, is that with this cult of growth, with this fetish we have with growth now as being uh, the way we uh, project our power, our worth, is that we have, in our pursuit of growth, exchanged stability for growth. So we have given up stability in order to attain growth. We've given up long-term stability, a stableness of our economy in terms of growth. Now think back to what I started with, the hunter-gatherers with the seven gardens. The modern economists would go to these hunter-gatherers, and they did, in fact, and said, look, you know, you can have more growth, you can have more efficiency, you can uh, produce more if you consolidate your holdings into one space, and then you won't have to spend so much time walking between them. You can sell your plot to the farmer next door, he can sell you his that's close to you, and you can consolidate, and, and voila, everyone's better off. What was not factored in here was that it would lead to a, a decline in stability, right? Your own personal stability would be impacted by this. And as governments, as countries, this is what we have done, right? In our pursuit of growth, 
we have traded our long-term stability. This reminds me heavily of Nassim Taleb, right? And we talk about Nassim all the time. Nassim is the the patron saint of Strong Town's thinking. If you want to understand what I've been kind of groping in the dark to try to figure out, and I'm still not there yet, but continue to to follow this light. The light is Nassim Taleb, right? The light is Nassim. I find everything that he does to be utterly fascinating and, you know, challenge my deepest insights in ways that uh, really, really have, have helped me a lot. His primary insight, this concept that he calls anti-fragility, the notion of things that gain from disorder, lines up a lot with what Sedlicek has said now about trading stability for growth. With an anti-fragile system, and, and I think the easiest way to understand this is to think of your own you know, human body. When you exercise, you are stressing your body. And when you exercise, that stress actually makes your body stronger. It makes your body healthier. It makes your body better and fitter. People fast. And actually fasting is a way to strengthen your body. It's a way to toughen your body up. When your body gets used to, I joke with my wife, she's a very regular eater. She eats you know, breakfast at the same time. She eats lunch at the same time. She eats dinner at the same time. And my kids have adopted these habits as well. I am, grew up on a farm and we just ate randomly, right? Like you would, you would eat breakfast and you might eat lunch two hours late and you might eat dinner at, you know, 10, 30 at night was very routine. Yeah. You worked till the sun went down. So a lot of times, you know, we had very irregular eating schedules. And when my wife and I got married and you know, as we brought up kids, I've, I watched this window every day, the hunger window, right? And it starts and, and these, you know, little girls of mine start to get a little volatile, a little crazy because their blood sugar is dropping and, you know, you got to get them and set them down and have some food. And essentially they're not very anti-fragile, right? They, they're very susceptible to not eating outside of that window. People who fast, People who grew up on farms and have crazy eating schedules tend to be able to go like long periods of time without eating, right? Your body becomes more resilient, it becomes stronger, it becomes more adaptable. So the idea of anti-fragile is this notion that we can create systems and, and natural systems in particular, complex adaptive natural systems, think rainforest, think traditional city. These were places that had characteristics of anti-fragility to them. So as they are stressed, they are designed to, during stress, to bounce back and become stronger, right? To actually gain from that levels of disorder. Let me kind of line this up because it shows the real fragility of where we're at today in our system. You take something that is resilient and in a resilient system, growth is good. I'm talking about economic systems today. Growth is good, but... When we don't have growth, then the idea is that we survive the bad times. This is actually the central insight of Keynes, in a sense. Sedlicek goes back and talks about, you know, Joseph in the Bible and how Joseph, you know, there's the, there's a story in the Old Testament where the king has a, has a dream and, and Joseph comes and interprets it for him and says, you know, you, you're going to have seven years of, of excess and then followed by seven years of famine, essentially like the first business cycle, right? And so what you should do is you should not consume everything you produce in those seven years of, of plenty. You should actually save some. So when you get to the seven years of famine, you've, you've got something there. And this was essentially Keynes's argument in a big sense. He added to it by saying, 
uh, you know, when things are bad, you should actually step in and make them better. You, you should be the catalyst that keeps things going because you'll keep it from getting horrible. So the idea of a resilient system is one that when growth is good, things do really well. But when growth stops, we're going to survive. We're going to be okay. We're not going to, you know, collapse and, and go backward. An anti-fragile system is one where growth is good. When growth is good, things go really well. But no growth is also good. When things don't go well, we also have some upside with that. Now, I think the difference here is more than subtle. When I say growth is good, if you think of this as like a graph going up, right? In a resilient system, things will go up when you get growth. But in an anti-fragile system, you're capturing some of that upside, but not all of the upside. You're willing to give up a little bit of upside during the good so that when things go bad, you also have upside. In a resilient system, you're trying to capture the upside. And then when things go bad, you're trying to hang on and not have them go down all that much. In an anti-fragile system, during the good times, you've got upside, not as high as resilient, but you've got upside. And then when you get to the bad times, you still have upside. So things still go up. That's an anti-fragile system. Let's contrast that with our current economic model. Our current economic model is what? Growth is awesome. Everything is awesome. <laughs> growth makes everything go up. Everything is great. Growth, growth, growth. And then when we get to not even just like not growth, but like slowdowns in growth, because really that's what the housing crisis was, was a slowdown in growth, right? What happens? Everything cascades down, downward, fast, accelerates downward. We've given up that stability in order to get the growth. So if you look at these three kind of graphs together, you would have the anti-fragile during growth that would go up a little bit. You'd have the resilient that would grow up even further. And then you would have our current system that would go way, 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 way up, way, way up. But when you get to the period where you don't have growth, what happens in the anti-fragile system is it still goes up, right? It still goes up. Not, not as much, you're not as robust, but it, it still goes up. In the resilient system, it flattens out, right? It flattens out and you, you try not to go down, but you, you flatten out. And in our current growth model, what happens when you get to those difficult times? Everything collapses. It craters. It craters. That's where we're at today. That's the way we've built our cities, the way we've built our economy, the way we've structured our morality, in a sense. Um, this is the way we've structured our entire, entire society. When I look at someone like Paul Krugman, and this is why Krugman drives me insane. This is why he drives me crazy and why I can't stand him. And it's not because he's a, he's a lefty that <laughs> I listen to a lot of lefties and I don't mind them. There's a lot of them I find very deeply intellectual and, and quite consistent in their belief systems. I, I find comfort in that. I, I enjoy listening to people of all political persuasions. I really do. But the thing about Krugman that drives me nuts is that he is completely inconsistent. And intellectually, I think in many ways, dishonest. And this notion of Keynesianism as translated today into debt doesn't matter, right? De deficits, this is Dick Cheney, deficits don't matter. Debt doesn't matter, right? What matters now is growth. What matters now is this cult of growth, this obsession that we have with obtaining growth because growth is, is what is needed to counteract the downturn. And in a sense, if you buy into this religion, that is very true. But what happens is that you get these wild swings, these wild swings up and then these wild swings down and then these wild swings up and these wild swings down. And if you go back to the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, what you were seeing was that the swings weren't as big. 
the the Keynesian theory of counteracting recession by having you know centralized intervention actually worked, right? It it made a lot of sense. But it made sense only because we weren't overcorrecting, right? We I've had this described before and I think a good way to think of this and this is a Minnesota analogy. I, for those of you that don't experience snow on a regular basis, this might not mean as much to you, but it's like driving a car on snow. And when you turn a little bit and the car starts to lose control, the, the first few iterations of swerving back and forth are kind of small, right? But when you overcorrect, what happens is that you start to swing more wildly and you just kind of start careening back and forth. And then pretty soon your car is, is spinning all the way around and you just slide off the road, right? This is essentially what has been happening with our economy. We, we had this theory about how to even out the business cycle, to get rid of the, the downs and just have ups, to just experience growth. And so we started to tinker with it. And when, when we hit bad times, we would stimulate, we would do the things that the book said to do in terms of, you know, the theories all suggested we should do to get things going again. And we did, we got them going again, but then we found that the next downturn was a, a little harsher. And so we had to do a little bit more. And then the next downturn was a little bit harsher. We had to do a little bit more. And, and you, you, you get to like the crazy point where you have a downturn and now you're pumping trillions of dollars in the economy. You've got eight years of zero, you know, percent interest rates and actually now talk of having negative interest rates. At, at what point do we say we've got the wrong religion, right? Like we got this wrong. Like we, we haven't got this figured out. Said the check made a statement that I had heard other people say before. Dave Cullum is my favorite one who said it. Uh, he said, austerity is not a policy. Austerity is a consequence, right? Austerity, we, we think of austerity as like a, a choice that we have. No, austerity is not a, a policy. Austerity is a, a consequence. Now, how you experience austerity is a policy choice, right? Do we cut here? Do we cut there? But at some point, austerity is no longer a policy decision. It is a consequence of our actions, right? It's a consequence of the system that we have created. Sedlicek argues, I think very persuasively to me, that we have to actually move beyond this cult of growth. We actually have to get socially where we're not monitoring GDP. We're not worried about that. We're we're not in a place where we measure prosperity based on this, you know, abstract economic statistic that is really quite bogus anyway. Uh, we actually measure it in different ways. And it, it's funny because he says, I'm not a hippie. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not someone who, you know, thinks everything should be about love and stuff. But he said, so what, what would you measure? You, you would measure things like art and happiness and, friendships. And it's funny because when you hear an economist say those things, right, it's, it's, it's runs so counter to the way economists present these hard, cold statistics of their, you know, very hard, cold analytical science. And, but yet when we think about our own lives, this is exactly the way we measure things, right? This is exactly the way we tend to value life, uh, particularly when we can kind of step outside of the system that we've been put in. Sedlicek talks about Keynes. I've read some of Keynes's work. I've read books about Keynes. I've read books 
about Keynes's work. I, I won't say that I have taken courses in economics that have delved deeply into Keynes's macroeconomic theories, but I, I feel like I'm maybe ascending Mount Stupid. Um, the <laughs> I should explain that. Mount Stupid, and this goes to Dave Collum. This is the first guy I saw put this together. Is a guy named Dave Collum. He's a professor at Cornell. Dave Collum put this thing together, Mount Stupid. It, it was a graph, and it said the vertical axis, so up and down, was your willingness to opine on a subject. And the horizontal axis was your knowledge of that subject. And what happens is when you have no knowledge, you're not willing to talk about something. But then when you get a little bit of knowledge, your willingness to talk about it spikes way, way up. But then as your knowledge goes up, your willingness to talk about it goes down because you realize, like, I don't really know as much as I think I know because now I'm being exposed to all these, like, advanced ideas. And then as you go out in time and you get even more knowledge, you become an expert and then you're willing to opine on things, right? I'm I'm probably somewhere in the Mount Stupid range when it comes to Keynes, right? I'm going to admit that. I'm going to admit that here. But Sedlicek is not, like, clearly is not. This is an economist. He studied this stuff. His argument is that, you know, if you go back and read Keynes originally, Keynes said we should be doing two things. We should be saving during good times and then spending during bad times. We should be putting money away during good times, running excess in a sense, having, having excess capacity. And then during bad times, we would have that ability to spend that excess capacity in order to essentially weather the storm. This is Joseph, right? And the, the prophecy of the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine, right? Sedlicek points out, he said, you know, as we become obsessed with growth, we just never have enough, right? We just never had enough growth. And so during times, uh, you know, you look back and you say abstractly, you know, 3% growth, 4% growth, these are times of plenty, but when we were experiencing 3% growth, we wanted to experience 3.4% growth. And when we were experiencing 4% growth, we needed to experience, you know, 4.4% growth. And so we, we always, we had this system where the growth was never enough. We just needed more and more growth because growth makes everything better. And avoiding a downturn, which was tragedy, became the name of the game, right? And so what we did is we spent and spent and spent and spent and leverage ourselves out and gave up as much stability as we had to in order to achieve that next bit of growth. This gives me actually to what has been bothering me and what I've been kind of fretting about with my, with my friends and my Facebook feed and the world going crazy, right? We have to ask ourselves, what does the end of this Ponzi scheme look like? You know, we talk about this post-war development Ponzi scheme, the way we build our cities, what does the end of that look like? Because there's a lot of you listening out there today that, that enjoy our stuff at Strong Towns and you enjoy it because it's an affirmation on life decisions you make or, or you've, you've made in the past or things that you believe or things you want to come true. You, you say, you know, I, I really appreciate the fact that you are pointing out how the cities are subsidizing the suburbs and how the cities are very, you know, financially productive places and how traditional walkable, bikeable development patterns are more productive than auto-oriented patterns. I, I like all that stuff. And that's great. I appreciate it. But I think some of you have this vision that what the end of this Ponzi scheme looks like is, you know, a bunch of suburban dwellers, you know, gleefully moving to cities, riding trains and sipping lattes, right? That's not what's going to happen. That's not 
how these things go down. What What is going to happen? How is this going to go down? I think that's what you're seeing. I think that's what we're seeing. When you look at, and I'll just maybe reiterate here as a disclaimer, because it's important, you know, Strong Towns is a nonpartisan organization. We are a nonprofit. We do no political anything. We are not involved in politics. We're not urging you to vote a certain way. We are not endorsing any candidates. We're not aligned with any political party philosophically. If we actually dig into our organization, we have a robust collection of political opinions and that's really good. And I've said many, many times, you can be far left of center, you can be far right of center, and you can find a home here at Strong Towns. You know, the insights that we have are, are not political. How you choose to react to them, how you choose to implement uh, rational responses, you know, th- those are political. And th- those, you know, our argument is they should be done at the local level. But if you want to live in a, a communist utopia, or you want to live in a, you know, a far right, uh, very, you know, ultra conservative city. I'm, you know, I can find places for both of those, right? I, I'm okay with that. This is not what this is about. But when you step back and you look at the choices that were being given politically and, and the results of Super Tuesday, you know, you, you really have, to me, what this unwinding of this Ponzi scheme looks like. It looks like on one hand, the kind of most corrupt of the current system put forth as the, as the alternative that, that people who want uh, some sort of, uh, you know, stability, the stability that we've given away, you want that back, right? And so we'll cling to whatever dregs is, are brought up and, and put forth as being like, here's the way we cling to this, even though it's not what you want and it's not, you know, it's corrupt and it rubs you the wrong way and everything about it is just not sitting with you right. This is, this is what we have to do if we want stability, and we've traded away all our stability to get in order to have growth. So th- this is all we're left with. And the other side of the spectrum, you have like the incarnate of the hand grenade, right? Like, okay, this whole thing is screwed up. Let's just throw it away. Let's just toss in the hand grenade and, you know, blow things up. And then we'll see where, where the chips fall. And these are like deeply unsettling choices. These are deeply unsettling choices. I, I know very few people who are jumping up and down saying, you know, I am thrilled about this. Mostly what we're thrilled about, and you actually have seen this in the last few election cycles, um, you know, we can go back to really the mid-1990s when we were being offered the lesser of two evils, right? No one wants this candidate. No one wants that candidate. But this one is not going to be as bad as that one. In Minnesota here, just as a, again, not endorsing any candidates at all here. But in Minnesota, I have, in a couple elections now, uh, voted independent at the gubernatorial level. And, you know, I offer that, again, not as an endorsement of any type, but but that's that's where my lack of allegiance has brought me. I voted independent in the last couple of elections. And it's, it's very interesting because when you get involved with you know, independent parties or third parties, what, what happens is, is people start to get really upset about this lesser of two evils choices, right? Because the reason you don't have viable third parties in this country is because we have this winner take all system. If your party controls Congress, you control the legislation. If your party controls the white, white house, you control the executive branch. And, and it's very much a winner take all kind of system. And so what happens is any viable third party starts to, you know, peel off uh, support, you know, the one of the two major parties tends to start to peel off that support. And one of the ways that they've done it in recent election cycles is to say, well, look, 
you can follow your heart and vote for this person who you think maybe represents you better, uh, represents your views better. But if you do, you're going to take support from me. And then that bad dude over there is going to get elected. And, you know, that's been deeply frustrating to people trying to start third parties. It's a, it's a byproduct of our system, right? What does the end of the Ponzi scheme looks like? I think it, the beginning of the end looks like this. I think the beginning of the end looks like this. And, and those of you that have been with us for a while know, you know, I, I've, I have been a student of the beginnings of World War One. I. I have been a student of the beginning of the Civil War and the dialogue at that point in time. I have been a student of the time period between the end of World War One and the beginning of World War Two. And there's a lot of people who are throwing around Nazi and Hitler and all this in, in the current election cycle. And I, I don't want to go there, except to say that when you look at 1930s Germany, what you see, yes, you see Adolf Hitler and you see this, you know, maniacal person gaining power through electoral means, you know, through popular support of enough people to get him into uh, offices where he could, you know, change the system and make it work for him and his ideology. But what you also see is a general desperation, a system in collapse, a system that did not work for people and broadly didn't work for people. And, you know, you want to talk about two bad choices? Well, choice number one, Hitler's Nazi Germany. Choice number two, uh, which was the counter choice at the time, uh, Bolshevism and, you know, the, the Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin approach. Now, there were moderate factions in there, right? People who, who didn't want either of those who wanted, you know, something like a, a representative republic, like a Western kind of style democracy. That was the Weimar Republic. They pretty much failed, right? They, they pretty much, things did not work out because they were not empowered to make decisions. And, and, and the decisions that they made were, you know, not up to the challenges of the day. This, this system collapsed. And when it collapsed, it, it literally went crazy. You know, when we start thinking about what the end of this Ponzi scheme looks like, it doesn't look like a bunch of suburban people abandoning their 3,000 square foot house with three car garage and, and, you know, boat and, and moving to the city and riding the trains and sipping lattes, right? It looks like a bunch of people trying to hang on to what they've come to define as prosperity, what they've come to define as success. And it looks like a bunch of the high priests of the current system telling them that they can have success if they just do A, B, and C, right? If they just, if we just deficit spend, right? If we just uh, have negative interest rates, if we just elect this person or that person or adopt this policy, we can keep what we've got and, and bring it back, right? You know, I was just going to use one of the campaign slogans, <laughs> make America great again, right? We can, we can do this. Yeah. We have traded away our stability in order to have growth. And at the end of the day, we're probably going to wind up with neither. Thanks everybody for listening today. I, I kind of had to get that off my mind before I left on vacation. So now it's out and I can actually enjoy my time. I'm sorry if you're going to go through a bit of depression. I'll be back soon and uh, we'll get you another podcast. Until then, thanks for listening and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care, everyone. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.
they know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.